this is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to Human Things Podcast Episode or Season Two, Episode Six. Welcome to the Human Things Podcast. This is Jay Watts. We have a um, guest today. I'm very excited about Christopher Tolson. Uh, the College of Arts and Science Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina. He has co-authored two of my favorite books, uh, Embryo, A Defense of Human Life, which he co-authored with Robert George, and The Way of Medicine, Ethics, and the Healing Profession, which he co-authored with Dr. Far Curlin. We will be talking about The Way of Medicine today, uh, and just we'll pull the veil back a little bit, give you a little look behind the curtain on most days we film the and do the interview first, and that is the case today. So I've already talked to Christopher Tolson, and it is just was a pleasure to record that conversation. And so we're going to keep it a little shorter today, though, because we had a wide ranging wide ranging conversation, and I want to get to that. Uh, and there's just not as much going on. We, we've been recording pretty quickly. Uh, there's no new news on the Animal Rise uprising front uh no surfers have been attacked i don't think the orcas have escalated their attack on sailboats in the straits of gibraltar the 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 dealing with the sugarcane thieves of the elephants is is about where it was last time they're still trying to figure out what the best way to deal with that is so we're we're holding steady uh no no new news on that front and um as far as just I was talking to somebody yesterday and I feel like I have to, I have to defend something. Um, and and it's, I don't know why I'm defending it here because we haven't talked about it here at all. Uh, but every time I tell somebody that my go-to movie when I am not in a great mood or I'm struggling is Joe versus the volcano. I get the strangest look from people as if they don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Brain fog. So, um, so yeah, Joe versus the volcano. If you haven't watched it, as a Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie, it's absurd. Uh, it was made, I believe, uh, by the um, what was the name of the 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 movie? The Moon something they did with Nicolas Cage and Angelica Houston, and had been nominated for Academy or huh? Moonstruck, yeah. And so, and so after Moonstruck, I think he directed that, and then they gave him the ability to direct whatever he wanted, and he made Joe versus Volcano, uh, which is I just one of my favorite movies ever. It's just a lovely, lovely movie. But one of the reasons I like it, as we're getting ready to talk about medicine, the way of medicine's the ethic of healing and profession, is because uh, it's, it's about a guy who is living a life that he hates, uh, who came to that place because he was looking for something safe because he had almost died. And I'm giving away a little bit, uh, but then he, um, he gets a brain fog. Isn't that what he's got? Brain cloud. It's a brain cloud. I'm sorry, not a brain. It's a brain cloud. And the, he, he has a brain cloud and it's going to kill him. So he agrees to become a living sacrifice for a group of people to help this corporation to get the resources that they need to make their superconductors. Uh, and it is a love story. It is an, a story about life. But what I love about it in conjunction with what we're talking about today is that it takes facing the end of his life for the main character, Joe, Joe Banks, to realize that he had made a series of decisions that were grounded in fear and that, that through that process that he had forgotten how big 
life is, right? That he wasn't grateful for his life. It, it took coming to the end of his life to become grateful for his life, to see all of the opportunities and all of the things that are possible. And, and that's just something in the conversation I was having with somebody, we were talking about at the time, the idea of someone doing things that weren't really real, like getting involved in things that, that, or I don't, I don't want to say manipulative because I believe that the person that's selling their service, however much I think the service they're selling is bunk actually believes that they're doing something instead of the people that are buying the service from them. And at some level, it's a transactional relationship. I have no business getting involved in, but the person that I were talking and they were saying, how do I pray about this? How do I approach this? Do I confront it? And I said, you know, oftentimes, and this is something I brought up Joe versus the volcano to discuss. So oftentimes um, God gets us out of our fake I don't know what I'm looking for. Our suffering, our self-induced suffering, our stress, our anxiety, uh, by introducing real, genuine challenge into our life that requires us to get past those things that were holding us back so that we can confront something bigger, uh, something real, maybe a genuine threat to our life, a genuine illness that has to be confronted, the loss of a loved one. But sometimes there are things, and, and I remember this, by the way, I can go back to when my oldest was 13. I want to say it was 13 months, right? Uh, I, I, he got sick over dinner, and it crystallized my life. Up to that point, uh, that night, we'd been sitting there at the dinner table, and I was stressing about work, and I was thinking about all the things that were going on about work that I wasn't happy with, and I was stressed about my job and miserable in what I was doing. And I was sitting at the dinner table and there's my 13 month old son sitting in his high chair and there's my wife. And we were listening to the wiggles and singing along is, and, and I was blinded from how great this moment was because I was just consumed with worry about my life. And then all of a sudden my son got the strangest look on his face. He was happy singing along. And then I remember this look, I will never forget the look. And then suddenly his face turned white and he started shaking and I felt his forehead and he was on fire and we rushed him to the hospital uh, and, and ran in. And I will tell you that real, that, that five seconds before that happened, I was consumed with what I thought were real worries that I thought were real problems, but were really just self-induced anxiety. It was stuff that I had introduced into my life almost purely for the purpose to sit around and stress over it. But you know what I was thinking on the way to the hospital when my wife was in the back? And my wife, oh, my wife. She is just the hero of every story, man, in our life. And, and just at that moment, you see everything a woman and a mom should be as she had our son in the back and she was singing hymns and songs about God, just peace raining over the car as I was ready to drive through every red light and wall and car that was in my way to get my son to the hospital. And, and all I could pray all the way there was I just don't care about anything else in this world except that I get to bring this same family home from the hospital the one that's going, 
God let us go home, this family. Everything else, it just doesn't matter. Yes, just an hour ago, it was it was eating me alive and affecting my health and my ability to sit at a table and enjoy my family. And then all of a sudden, in one crystallizing moment, I realized I don't care about any of that at all. I can start over. I could lose everything and start over if I got these people with me. This is what I need at the end of the night, God, these people, not anything else. And, and it was, that was the point of the conversation and why I think Joe versus the volcano is probably a movie that I love as much as I do. It's not obscene or gross or violent or anything. Like I said, it's absurdist. It's silly. Uh, and it's lovely and it's colorful, but it's, 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 I've been there so many times in my life where I have let the, the concerns of the day cloud my judgment over what's most important. And so the defense of it is like, is this, how do you like that movie? Or I've never even heard of that movie. Or why is that movie so important to you? And, and reflection, as I was talking to them about it, I said that that movie is a, is to me a lot, a lot of times a mirror for me and how I approach life. I need to be reminded when I'm having a bad day that the things that are bothering me, they're not essential to my life. And then there have been times when Peyton got sick, when MJ was diagnosed as a type one diabetic, when my wife had a stroke, there have been moments in my life where everything that was important became crystal clear in front of me. Uh, and when all of the other stuff got its proper perspective on my life of just trivial things that just don't matter. It's those people, it's our relationships, it's our love. If I have that, I can endure all of the rest of the stuff. And Joe versus the volcano is just a lovely little fairy tale. I mean, it is, it's a fairy tale. It was made to be a fairy tale. It's a lovely little fairy tale about Joe Banks and his brain cloud and how he comes to be grateful for the life that he's been given. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't watched it, to watch it uh, and uh, enjoy it. All right, and before we bring on uh, Christopher Tolofson, I want to talk about one other thing very quickly. Another one of the, I talked a little bit over the last couple of episodes about the idea of personhood. Uh, and in the last episode, we talked about birth and just trying to sort through some of these things. One of the things that I heard also in the midst of all of these conversations was this this argument that comes up a lot where somebody says, well, when the brain ceases to function is when we consider you dead. So when the brain begins to become this central part of this organizing principle of your body, when you become brain alive, if brain death is death then brain life is life. And so it's when you have a functioning brain and they sometimes take it all the way up to consciousness or self-awareness or sentience or whatever they want to say. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode as well. None of those being particularly value giving properties, but here's the problem with that. First of all, when they say we're brain death uh, is when we call the end of life. I, I, I always think that's interesting. I was talking to a doctor one time and they said, you know, what about this, about brain death being the end of life. And he said, well, there's a reason, right? He said, I don't understand why we have this category. He said, true brain death. Now we're talking about someone in a coma. Now we're talking about somebody uh, who's in a, uh, a persistent state of unconsciousness. Not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about true brain death. He said, true brain death is just death. He said, you're just dead. That's, I mean, that's, if your brain, they said, okay, we could, we could keep particular organs operating if we wanted to, pump air into the lungs, make blood flow through the heart, but none of those 
are any longer working as part of an organism. An organism is organized through the brain. And the, 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 when the brain ceases to function, the organs could continue to function independent of the organism, but there would no longer be a central organism working in cooperation to keep that being alive, right? The heart, the brain, the liver, the kidneys, the intestinal tract, all of those are, all of our operating in service of a single organism. And then once the brain is gone, the organism is gone. And even if we can keep organs alive, they're independent organs not, walk, not operating together any longer. So the doctor said, the reason that we say you're dead when your brain dead is because you're dead. You're, that's just when life ends. And that's because the entire body is run through the brain. And the organization of all of those other systems is handled by the brain. Well, here's why that's not relevant to the beginning of life, because that's not true of early human life. That is a, a, a capacity or a, an organizational principle that comes into play later. But to say that since brain death is death, which is just the same way of saying that death is death, but just because we die when the brain is no longer the organizing principle of our body, to say that until the brain shows up, functioning in that role, we're not alive is wrong because we are alive. There is an organism on in which this brain will develop and this, this organization principle will develop within the brain. And that organism lives all the way up through that early. It's not possible for you to come into existence with a fully functioning brain. That would just be weird if the sexual reproduction process produced a brain first and then everything grew around it. Uh, and, and I can't even imagine the gamuts that would be necessary to have something like that. Uh, it would be wholly intrusive and a different whole kind of reproduction altogether. What this means, and I've heard Scott Clusen were talking about it where he said it's the difference between no more and not yet. There's no more life because the brain is ended, but the brain has not yet come. All that really means is that early human life doesn't need a brain as the organizing principle for its development. And, and as it moves through those early developmental stages, it's not requiring a brain to be the center of that and to organize all of that. The organism lives and functions and develops without a brain initially. And then very early on, you get a primitive streak, which is the beginning of the central nervous system. And then the brain starts to develop rudimentary levels and then the, the level function that it has. I've, I've heard, you know, rudimentary brain levels or brain waves as early as like six weeks when people talk about it. Uh, when you get to organized cortical brain activity, that happens much later. I've heard the estimates sometime between like 25 and 30 weeks. Uh, consciousness happens after birth. And as we talk about self-awareness and as we talked about in earlier, when you get to the, the full self-awareness that you can pass the mirror test, you're like 18 months after birth. Uh, so, so the development of the brain, by the way, that brain development is going to keep going on into your twenties. Uh, when you're in your teenage years, your brain is not fully developed yet. Uh, and so the idea that the fact that you can live without a brain as an organism early on means that you're not a life that worth respecting doesn't make any sense at all, because all that means is that early life doesn't need a brain, but it is life. And early human stages of development don't need a brain in order to coordinate all of the growth that it's going through. And this is a very short period of time. It can be over like that. Human development, from the time that you come into existence as a single cell, as a zygote, through birth, is remarkably fast. And the prejudices that we can place on something for existing for this brief moment of time 
without capacities that are coming if we just leave that life alone in a very short amount of time is often, oftentimes remarkable to me that we use that as justification for destroying life. Well, you can't do it yet. Sure, they can't do it yet, but they're going to be able to do it in a couple of months if you just leave them alone. Just don't kill them and it's coming, right? So when people say, well, because brain death is the end of life, which as I said, is just like saying death, death is the end of life, then not having a brain prior and early stages of development means that life hasn't begun. Like as far as meaningful personal life, it hasn't begun yet. Nonsense. All that means is that early biology isn't centered around the brain. That early developmental phase doesn't need the brain to coordinate all of the cell cellular differentiation that's starting to happen as things start to move into systems. The primitive streak happens very early. We're talking about like the 12th or 14th day that that begins. And that is the beginning of hardcore cellular differentiation and the beginning of the different systems as the, uh, the body, the cells start to move into the places where they're going to become heart cells and brain cells and muscles and all of those different things. So it's, it's, it's Scott said, it's not no more versus not yet. And the one sense we are literally at the end of life, death. There is no longer any organizing principle to this organism. Anything that's still operating is operating independent of each other. The brain's gone. Life is over. Not yet is a different place because the brain's coming. You just got to give it a little time. And in order to be alive and to develop and to function, that early human organism doesn't require a brain. That will happen later when the brain becomes the center of coordinated the efforts of that organism, but not yet. So early human life doesn't need a brain, but that doesn't mean it's not early human life. And that certainly isn't justification for destroying it or using it as a resource for the better of other human beings. All right. Um, short and sweet. Now let's get to Dr. Christopher Tolufson. All right, we're welcoming to the show now Dr. Christopher Tolufson. Uh, let me, before I turn it over to him, let me tell you why. I've mentioned already on this show, but he has written, he's the co-author of two of my favorite books. One has been a favorite for a while now in both editions of the book Embryo, A Defense of Human Life that he wrote with Robert George. And then recently I read The Way of Medicine, Ethics and the Healing Profession that you wrote with Far Curlin. Is that the correct pronunciation? That's right. Okay. And, and I'll tell you, I want to say before we turn over why I loved the way of medicine so much and why it, it spurred me to just send you an email and say, would you be willing to come on and talk about this? Uh, I talk about issues like the value, all, all my fo focus on my work is the value of human life uh, and how it uh, impacts multiple different things. When I worked with an organization called Life Training Institute with Scott Klusendorf, we focused almost entirely on abortion, but when it started Merely Human Ministries, the idea of it was to, for, for me and my work, to expand and to talk more about physician-assisted suicide. I've had Ben Mitchell on to talk about AI. Uh, and just anything that has to do with how human beings treat each other and just getting to the root of what it means to be a human being, what it means when we say that we ought to treat human beings in a certain way. Uh, and, and one of the things that you find when you're arguing or talking about these things in front of audiences in very specific fields uh, is that they think that I'm trying to argue for a, a view that says everything is okay. They're like, you just want everything to stay the same as a conservative. You just want it to stay the same or you want to hold on to something from the past. And what I always have to try to tell people is, no, the problem isn't that I don't see the issues or I don't see the problems in the way that things are working. The thing is I reject your solutions. 
but I, 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 I do see, and you mentioned in your book at one point, you're talking about Dr. Ira Bayak, who I've quoted oftentimes when I do talks on physician-assisted suicide. I do see that the way we're doing certain things isn't working. So what I'm looking for are solutions that don't involve seeing human beings as the problem to eliminate. And, and that I love your book because I love people who propose solutions. And your book isn't just saying there's something wrong. It starts off for those who haven't read it, and hopefully everybody who hears this will read it. But it starts off with this idea that there was paternalistic medicine where the doctor had control. And I'm going to let you talk, obviously, more about all this in a second. And then there was, uh, we moved to a place where autonomy became the king. And it was the idea that the patient got to treat the physician as a service provider that, that, that works for them and gives them what they want. And you guys don't just point out that there's a problem with this. You try to offer a solution to the problem with a different way of looking at medicine because so much of what we talk about, we talk about the, the things that are wrong with the way human beings treat each other, goes back to a bigger issue of how human beings understand what we are in this world and our relationship to each other and our relationship to our jobs and generations and, and all of these different things. So that's why I was so excited to have you on and to talk about this book. So I'm gonna turn it over to you now. Well, thanks, that is great to hear. Um, I'm always glad when somebody's read it and it's even better when somebody uh, has read it and enjoyed it. Let me just actually say a little bit about how the book came about because I think it it speaks to a concern that you're sharing that I also have immense sympathy with. Um, I, far, far is a physician, Far Curlin is a physician at Duke University. He also has a joint appointment in the Divinity School. And the two of us now for, I think, 12 years taught a summer seminar aimed at medical students. Um, to They come, first it was at Princeton, now it's at Duke. They come and spend a week or, or a few days at least uh, talking about the nature of medicine, what medicine is for. We asked that question at the very beginning of the seminar. A lot of them have never heard anybody ask that question. We think it's an essential question to ask if you're going to be a physician. What is it that you're doing this for? Yeah. Um, and, and over that 12-year period, uh, my relationship with FAR has, has, has grown. We grew into this book. It grew into a, a deep friendship. And the students that we've had over the past 12 years, many of the ones from the first few years are now practicing physicians. And I think our, our work is bearing fruit in actual concrete medical practice. So it's, it's great to see that working out in the world in a concrete way. And it's great to have had this work emerge from a real friendship, right? from a relationship of, of two human beings. Philosophy doesn't always work that way. And it also doesn't always work in such a way that the, the partnership involves somebody who actually has concrete experience in the field that you're talking yes. about. Yeah. Um, so and that that's becomes been... powerful in the book because of the he's he's able to give illustrations as he's mm -hmm. saying, "Let me tell you about something that actually happened uh, in in my practice." I agree. It is yeah. a powerful. Point. And and it, uh, you'll probably remember there's a point late in the book where um, Far is describing a particular incident that went went wrong, and he yeah. says, "This was this was bad medicine on my part." Uh, yeah. And I I mean I just I really admire his ability to reflect on the work that he's done and to give it kind of critical thought that it needs in order for him to be able to improve his practice of medicine and for us together to improve our thought about what the nature of medicine is. So let me maybe say just, yeah, go ahead. No, I just want to say yeah, what, I, what I find that what's really encouraging to me about what you just said is that oftentimes ideas, when, when you hear them, they take some a longer time to disseminate and to practice. But what it sounds like what you're saying is, is that, that you have all, you all you've been practicing what this book is 
with medical students and it's already seeing fruit and how human beings are being treated and how, how doctors are seeing their job and understanding their role in the lives of patients. And now you're serve this is, this is something to be shared more broadly with people so that you can spread something that's already active. Is that, is that? A- no, that's exactly right. And uh, oh, the students great. that we've had in the past, they maintain relationships with one another. Several of them are working together to create small groups uh, so that they can continue to discuss what it means to be, a good doctor, right? Which is really the question that we're trying to ask throughout the course of the book. Oh, that's incredibly encouraging. All right, now go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, uh, no, not, not at all. Uh, I mean, what does it mean to be a good doctor? I mean, one of the things you've already started to introduce this in a helpful way. One of the things that we try to do just to set up the book as a whole is to introduce two different models of what it means to be a practicing physician, two different ways of, of thinking for yourself what it is that you're all about. We don't think that uh, people, physicians necessarily fall exclusively into one or another of these models. They probably swing back and forth between aspects of, of each. But we do think it's important to be clear what the commitments of the two models are because we don't think that they're mutually compatible. So on what you mentioned as the provider of services model of medicine, physicians basically have a kind of set of technical skills and they've been granted a license by society to exercise those technical skills on behalf of what we in the book call patient well-being, where that's understood in a very way. So it's just satisfaction of patient preferences, autonomous patient preferences. And so the, the sort of ethics, the minimal ethics that governs that kind of a practice of medicine is that if a patient has autonomously requested something and it's something that's technically possible and it's something that's legal, yeah. uh, you, you should do it, right? And increasingly, the, the model of medicine that we're calling the provider of services model is moving towards the idea that if you don't do what the patient autonomously demands of you, right, so far as the law requires, that you're in violation of your physician and you should find some other job. And we'll maybe talk a little bit about that later yeah. in the in the podcast. Um, that's a pretty that's a pretty demoralized what we call it as a demoralized conception of medicine. It's it's hard to see that as the kind of job that warrants the extremely long hours uh, and the extreme level of dedication that physicians have if you're basically a kind of functionary for servicing patient desires in order to satisfy those desires. And we think that, I mean, especially Farr, who's done a lot of work on physician burnout, we think that's part of the reason that physicians express a high level of dissatisfaction with their job. What is it that they're professing? What is it that they're committed to? How is it that their job serves some genuine human need and human good uh, if it's just about the satisfaction of patient preferences. So that's the, I mean, there's the provider of services model. If you want to ask questions about that before I move on to, you know, sort of what we're promoting, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. And, and I, I talked to a doctor about this before a couple of days ago, and, and he was, he was discussing his frustration. He's a surgeon. And I, I was mentioning the book and he was very interested now in reading the book because he said, you know, people treat me, like it's my job to do what they demand of me without any concern whatsoever about what I think about the circumstances that they're inviting me to participate in. And as he was talking about people who are asking for demand, not asking for demanding in his mind, what he thinks is unnecessarily risky surgery for people who have, you know, low ability to probably survive it. The, 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 all of these things, he said, it's, it's frustrating because, for him, there is no longer any sense that he has anything to say about what the course of treatment should be, but that he is being is being demanded of him that he do certain things. And when he doesn't do it, he's it's being treated as if he is violating 
the rights of that patient. And another doctor, and this is one thing I think is interesting before we move on to what you are saying, because you, you do early on, you, you say, when I, when what I mentioned earlier, a paternalistic idea of medicine that existed when the doctor could just tell the patient, this is what you needed. And I, when I was reading it, I was thinking about it in terms of a lot of other things that we deal with. And with a conversation I had about with a doctor recently about what happened during COVID, and he said, the thing is that it's an information thing, right? They didn't, we didn't used to have access to medical information really at all. And so you had to sort of trust a doctor fully to explain to you what was going on. But now it's switched if for doctors. When you talk to them, it's as if they, when they talk to me, they say, when I asked them about this, they would tell me they believe that they have all of the same information that I have because they've looked up things online and so that we're somehow colleagues when they come and talk to me uh, and that they have no respect for the serious nature of research. Uh, they talked about all that. They say that they, they'll tell me I've researched this. And it's like, I don't think you understand what the word research means to me versus what it means when you're talking about watching a, a YouTube video or something like that. Uh, and so I was wondering just for me, what the role do you think of that increased level of information that kind of makes all of us believe on some level or another that we have some expertise that we don't have might be playing in this aggressiveness of this provider of service model and how people are treating doctors. I think that's a, that's a great question. I think it, it does play an important role. I mean, far, far has done a little bit of complaining about Dr. Google, uh, yeah. as he, as he calls it. Um, I, I, and I think there needs to be a little bit of a balance here and it is going to, this will be helpful for, for introducing the, the sort of the model that we have in mind. And there is genuine physician expertise, right? It's not, yeah. if you think that health is just a sort of social construct, then you're going to think there's no real such thing as, as physician expertise, but physicians genuinely know an awful lot about health. Um, and part of what it means to be a good patient is clearly to respect that aspect of physician understanding and physician knowledge. I think it is helpful, and this is true, one of the, one of the ways that, that we have proceeded to think through together, Far and I, this, is oftentimes by drawing parallels between his profession as a physician and my profession as a teacher at a, at a university. I, you know, I'm gonna say obviously, so, so maybe that sounds obnoxious, but I obviously know a lot more philosophy than my students do. Yes. Um, and for, you know, for students to come in and, and you know, uh, sit down in my office and say, well, I'd like you to listen to my philosophy. Um, yeah. oh, no, please. But of course, <laughs> I, you know, I do have to be I do have to be open to um, to student insights. Right. And to yeah. student this, the sensitivity that students have is the people who really do have educational needs when those needs are not being met in an appropriate way or when they think that something is wrong, they maybe can't articulate it. That's clearly true for patients as well. And I think Far and I are, are both want to be sensitive to this. There's genuine physician expertise, but to some extent, and it's, it's limited and needs to be addressed in a virtuous way, but to some extent, the increased information and knowledge that we have available to us on the internet also makes it possible for patients to articulate for their physician in a more efficient way, a more effective yes. way sometimes, what it is that's going on with them. And I think probably, you know, finding the balance there between patients thinking that they know what's going on and telling the doctor versus patients adopting a language that's made available to them on the internet that they can maybe communicate more effectively with their physician. I think that's an important balance to be struck. Uh, well, but I think the news is not all bad there. Yeah, and that's a major theme of the book, right, is balance. Mm -hmm. You're looking for a balance between two negative things. When things swing one way or another, can we find a way to 
to find a more balanced approach. But it, you're, I, I appreciate that point, right? It does give us the ability to communicate more clearly to people. Um, to your point, also, I just think this is a funny anecdote because uh, you were talking about students coming in and wanting to share your philosophy, uh, I w- their philosophy with you. I was talking to a literature professor in a college, and he said, you know, I have, when I grade papers with freshmen, and they'll tell me, but that's my writing style. And he'll say, <laughs> you're, you're not accomplished enough to have a style. You don't even know how to write yet, right? You don't, you don't get to have a style till later. And, and, and there is a, there's, so there's that sort of hubris of, of youth, uh, and what they knew, know, believe they know, and then oftentimes the introduction that there's just a broader, wider world for them to become uh, accommodate, uh, accustomed to. So, yeah, no, that's right. You know, one thing that um, I mean, you mentioned COVID, and I think that that also illustrates a point that is going to be helpful for understanding sort of the position that Far and I are trying to describe. Physicians, we think, do have an expertise in health, and on the model that we describe as the way of medicine, right? Yes. Health is what physicians are about, right? The, the practice of medicine is oriented fundamentally towards human health, right? Which we think is you know, an objective norm, natural norm for human beings. We can tell whether somebody is healthy or not. It's not just a subjective determination. And we also think that it's a genuine good, right? I mean, some, you're better off being healthy. So physicians are pursuing something that's objective in two ways. Right? There's a fact of the matter as to whether a patient is healthy or not. And there's, it's also objectively something that's valuable for physicians to be pursuing. But, you know, and they know, of course, they know a lot about that first fact. They know a lot about what health is and how to pursue it. But one of the things that COVID, I think, illustrated for a lot of us, I'm sure this was true, is that if you think that health is the only good that there is, yeah. right, then that's going to result in a distorted view of what medical expertise and medical authority is all about. And the paternalism model that you mentioned kind of worked with a little bit of that assumption, right? On the assumption that health is really the only thing that patients care about, physicians got to say, here's what you need to do in order to be healthy, and here's what you're going to do in order to be healthy. And the the fact is, health is an incredibly important good. Everybody thinks that it's a valuable part of a well-lived life, but it's not the only part of a well-lived life. And in COVID, we saw a lot of other goods that were uh, not adequately attended to, goods such as children's education, for instance, um, or the sociality of people being able to interact face-to-face, the friendship that can be impacted when people aren't able to to get in a room together and talk to one another face-to-face. And one of the things, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about this in just a little bit, but the authority of the physician really is limited to that health expertise. The authority doesn't have authority, the physician doesn't have authority with respect to where that good of health needs to sit in your life or in my life with regard to all the other goods, right, that you yeah. or, or me, you know, that we're committed to in our, in our particular lives. And that's going to be, I think, important for um, drawing a line between what the physician has authority to offer and what the, what the patient has uh, a right to request or to say yes to, but also what the limits are for, for, that, for that right on the part of the patient. And if I'm getting ahead of the, just tell me, because if this is something you want to get to later, but one of the things is you talk about the good of health, right? And in a sense that it's a good, you know, attached to human flourishing. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book and that going back to COVID that I found particularly riling, upset me the most about where we lost sight of things personally that I felt during COVID. You talk about the difference between physicians understanding their role as attending to the health of their patients versus uh, the, the, the sort of scientific belief that my role is to take care of humanity at large and the kind of decision-making that that influences. 
And, and the reason I brought it up, I was thinking during COVID was because of, of the things that I found upsetting during COVID was particularly the insistence by the medical community oftentimes that as a family member was sick and hospitalized, they would not allow the people that love them to come in and to be with them at a time when they were most scared, most vulnerable, most frightened uh, because of this sense that we have to look to the good of all others. And for me, that was something, there's something deeply human being lost there if you don't understand. And, and this goes even when we talk about later physician-assisted suicide and some of the things that Ira Bayok has written about. But at a moment where people need community and need loved ones and need just to be a part of the human family, and they're most vulnerable and sick, I, I was personally outraged by the idea that it became normal practice, it felt like, for many places to bar loved ones from seeing their sick relatives while they were sick in the hospital because of a commitment to a greater good. And, and it just feels like you're losing some of some of the importance of what it means to be human uh, when you force people to go through the, perhaps the scariest moment of their life or even the end of their life, their last moments that they're going to have in, as a part of a human community with strangers who don't love them and, and won't allow the people who do to be there so that they can be a part of this very important event in their life. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a tragic, tragic period in our history of the last four years. Uh, and I think it illustrates again, and it, obviously there's going to be circumstances in which something like that is required for the common good, right? With a yeah. really virulent disease that is extremely lethal, right? Um, but we have to be constantly aware that health is not the only good, that there are other important aspects of human well-being, like that solidarity that exists between loved ones, and that even in the circumstances in which it's justified to create these kinds of restrictions, something significant is being lost. Because if you don't think that, that something significant is being lost, then you're going to think that you can just continue these restrictions right, in perpetuity. Yes. Right? You're not going to see that there's going to come a point where the balance of proportionality is going to change and where you're going to say, look, even if we do have to accept some risk on the part of health, right, in order to yeah. teach effectively, in order to be good physicians, um, in order to be able to participate in the good of, of human work, right, um, even if we have to accept some, some risk to health, nevertheless, right, that's the reasonable thing to do because life is made up of many more goods than just this one good. Now, that, that said, right, what physicians are, of course, as we were just saying, I mean, what they're especially equipped to do is to understand their patients' health needs and to make a commitment to particular patients, to the particular patients that they're caring for, uh, to, to promote that health insofar as it works within the structure of a patient's life. And what we, what we argue in the book is that even just framed, I think this is one of the most important things that we try to, to argue by contrast with the provider of services model, even if... Um, there are these, these many other goods uh, that are important. What the physician is committed to doing is to never working outside the domain of human health in a way that contradicts that value. Right? So we think compatible with the physician's commitment, the commitment uh, the physician might say in respect to some particular procedures that are asked for by a patient, well, those don't really, those don't really bear upon the good of health that I'm committed to. But in other cases, the physician is going to need to say, those are contrary to the good of health that I'm committed to. What you're asking me to do goes contrary to the most fundamental commitment that yeah. I have as a physician. And in the provider services model, that's just not the case. Um, anything is on the table in principle, 
right? If it's, again, if it's legal and if it's technically possible and the patient autonomously has asked for it, there's no particular boundary that specifies what the physician's commitment is, right? And so the patient can ask for a variety of different things that might not be particularly health related. And depending upon the valence of the patient's uh, autonomous desire and consent, even what can be demanded of a physician can run contrary to the good of health. And so the same condition, pregnancy, for instance, uh, might be seen in one circumstance as an aspect of health to be pursued by a physician and under another circumstance as something to be ended by the physician, right, as contrary to what the, what the patient wants. And so we think that this is a pretty striking distinction, right, on the provider yeah. services model, right? Health is, is either not the only thing that physicians are about or it's an extraordinarily open-ended concept and physicians can act for any aspect of that open-ended concept and even contrary to what we would think of as ordinary health. And in the way of medicine, physicians, their only commitment is to the health of their patients. And so they can say no to things that go outside that commitment. And they need to say no, we yes. think, right, to things that are contrary to that commitment. And, and you know, to, to repeat that, like the clarity there, when you're talking about the provider service model, you said it before you say it in the book, it, there's some standards there, right? It, is, it, is it legal? Is it medically possible? Is it a fairly socially acceptable action? It, it, there, the, it's none of this is a question of whether or not it is to the benefit of the health of the patient specifically. That's, right. That's not the question that's being asked. It's within the medical skill that you have. Is this a medical possibility? Is it legal to do it? Is it somewhat socially acceptable for you to do it? Because if it is, then to, no matter what it is that we're asking for, and you even, I think you, I don't know which one of you coined the term, but you'll talk about the idea of, I think, reproductive technology being like the Wild West right now. That there, right, yeah. That there's just no, if it can be done and it's legal to do it, then it can be demanded of doctors and, and there are people that will profit off of doing these things. And there's not a consideration in that provider of service model, the way you're talking about it. If it meets those criteria, then it can be demanded versus the, the, considered opinion of the expert, the, uh, which is the physician, of does this benefit the health of the patient? Uh, and in the way of medicine, which is the name of the book, but it's also the, the category of, of or the way, which you guys name your approach to medicine and medical practice, you're, you're saying that what must come first, primary importance is how does this affect health? Uh, and, and health can be objectively defined in some sense as far as we're, as we're talking about a human organism. You guys talk about that. We're, we're an animal. We're an organism. We know what it means to operate fully, healthily, how to flirt, what it means when we say human beings are flourished. I hear that a lot when you talk to doctors, when, when someone's not doing well, the first indication is there's a failure to flourish. Uh, and so we have to attend to whatever it is that's stopping that flourishing. There's some component, some system, some organ, something's not working correctly. And that that is the primary focus and the way of medicine versus is it legal, uh, is it acceptable, is it medically possible, then it can be demanded. Is that that's right. correct? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you, you get a good sense from just the way that you described it of why one of these models really sees medicine as a profession in a kind of classic sense of that word. Um, I think if you think about the, the we, we say a little bit about this in the book, the the sort of practices that are considered to be the paradigmatic professions like medicine or the law or the priesthood, um, or even I think teaching, these all speak to 
huge, profound vulnerabilities in human yeah. persons, right? I mean, yeah. the, the dimensions on which you can be most significantly threatened by either your own body or by the world at large, right? So yeah. you're at the mercy of the state and the legal system, and you need people in the law to protect you with regard to that kind of vulnerability. Uh, human beings have always worried about existential concerns, and members of the clergy speak to those existential concerns, which are, again, a sort of profound axis of vulnerability. And physicians do that, too. It's not just that they know a lot of, of health, right? You could have people yeah. who know tremendous amount of health but don't care, right? Physicians yeah. are the people who care about your health-related vulnerabilities. Um, and that, you know, that, it seems to us, sets up the possibility of medicine being um, an incredibly meaningful way to structure your life, right? As a physician, it does make sense of those incredible demands and commitments and, and you know, the amount of time and the amount of things that you need to learn. Uh, it makes sense of that in a way that it wouldn't really make sense. I mean, I, I you know, I, I need my morning coffee. I love going into, love going into the coffee shop and, and asking for the double espresso or the cappuccino yeah. or whatever. Um, but, but, it's not really, I don't really have a coffee vulnerability. Um, and it's not really the business of the person behind the, behind the bar to, to decide whether this is really part of my good or whether, you know, is that, do you really want soy milk in that? That's not, I mean, maybe they should ask that question. I don't know. Ask you some questions um, about what you intend to do for the rest of the day. Exactly. We've got to make exactly. some decisions about what you're ordering here, friend. <laughs> this, this might not be, this might not be the coffee for you. Um, I, you know, I think it's, it's important for us to situate medicine, which we think is, you know, a really important calling for human beings within what makes it a profession. And that is its attention to a profound human vulnerability that's situated the dimension of, of human health. And I like, I was, I was just thinking about that, uh, that part of the book when you were describing that was that you, you both talk about it as a calling that, that mm -hmm. many people that work in the medical, you said, feel, talk about this as a calling it's more than just a job or a way that they fill their time. It is, they feel called to help people in this moment. Actually, that, you would obviously want that to be what a good physician is operating from their foundational principle. They're not just in it for profit. They're not in it for the prestige. They're not in it for uh, whatever socioeconomic benefits that come with it. Uh, they're in it to help. And every good doctor I've known, and I've, I've been blessed to know a lot of them, they, they genuinely care about the health of their patients. And it's, it's, I, I like the idea of vulnerability. I hadn't thought about that until you guys introduced it and then listening to you talk about it right now, because I have now at the age, by the time I'm 52 years old, right? I've had health issues that have come up that for all of my life I was healthy. And then suddenly your body turns on you in some way that mm -hmm. has never done it before. And it is a, an un, unnerving moment, right? your whole life, it's like something hurts, but it's nothing, right? My elbow hurts. It's nothing. I get a little sore in my neck. It's nothing. And then all of a sudden one day it is something. And, and with my doctor whom I love is such a, he was so cool when I went to him to talk to him about it. Right. It was, this is, this is fine. We've got this. I understand what he, he understood that part of his job was to help me come to terms with what was going on. In addition to, giving me whatever treatment was going to be necessary to get past it. And, and so that is such a huge, the vulnerability I felt and my wife, my wife is a stroke survivor. And, you know, for the first 46 years of her life, she never had any major health issues at all. And then all of a sudden one day she has a stroke while we're out at lunch and there's an aspect of it. It was the same doctor 
where his coolness and calm, calmness as we went through the process of her recovery and what it meant for her going forward was a big part of her becoming comfortable again, feeling like she could manage her life and her body and not have to live in fear of this happening again. It wasn't the calling, as you talked about, in light of lawyers protecting you and also clergy, but the role that he served in our life is more than just somebody who gave us medical information. He mm -hmm. treated us as human beings and helped us to get past a vulnerable moment where we suddenly felt like our bodies had turned against us. Uh, and, and that is valuable. And, and I go back even to my daughter. I have a, one of my ch children was diagnosed as a type one diabetic when she was eight years old. And I can remember the man who came in the, the, the guy in the emergency room who, who would eventually become her endocrinologist until he retired just this last year for the next 10 years of her life. And it was his, demeanor as he walked in to talk to my eight-year-old daughter that helped put her at ease. It wasn't just let me come in with medical facts to help you at this point with your body. He walked in at the moment where this girl's whole life had been changed and upended in the course of a couple of hours. And he brought back a sense of, we're going to have this under control. We're going to make you healthy. We're going to teach you how to live your life in a way that you will live a long, productive life. And you'll get to be able to do almost everything that everyone else gets to do. And so that's such a, that, that idea of calling and, and when good doctors attend to that, it is transformational for people facing health issues. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you could imagine a physician who, I mean, you know, there's physicians, you might imagine physicians who only do it for the money, right? That's obviously one particular kind of medical pathology. I think we've been both probably blessed to know many more physicians that are genuinely committed to their patient's health. But you could imagine a physician who did what they did only because they liked the technical challenge, right? They yep. had immense amounts of knowledge and they thought of each new person who comes in as a new opportunity to exercise those skills. And on our view, that's not what medicine is, right? Um, medicine does, it requires this commitment to seeing your particular patients, your individual human patients through these periods of vulnerability. Um, in the best scenario, you're gonna be able to, to cure them, right? In yep. some way. That's, that's going to restore their health. But even in circumstances where a full cure or even a partial cure isn't possible, right? The good physician is still committed to the welfare of their patient on this dimension of, of human health and to, you know, accompanying them through this really difficult period of their life, this vulnerability that, you know, is going to happen to all of us at one point or, or another. And they want to be good doctors, right? They that's want right. to do their job mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Then, and so one of, one of the things, you know, suppose, I mean, you, you, you take yourself to have a calling and I take myself to have a calling. Yeah. Neither of us are part of the, the medical profession, but I assume that you've given thought as I have to what are the sorts of things that I need to think about in determining what it is that I'm being to being called to do. Yeah. And we think that, phys, you know, physicians uh, in waiting, people who are in, in training to be physicians, people who are thinking of going to medical school, one of the things that they really do need to think about is whether they share this commitment that we think is foundational for what we're calling the way of medicine. If you don't share that commitment, then we think, right, you're not being, either you're not being called to be a physician or you are yeah. being called to a kind of, you know, considerable change in the, the attitude that you're taking towards what you're, what you're all about. And that's an important point. I, I, on another note, going back to clergy for a second and dealing, and on that same note, but a different field. 
I was at, I was doing a trip to Indonesia and I was asked to speak at a university and then I was asked to speak at a pastor's conference. I, I just find out as I'm up here, by the way, that I've been set up by the organizer who brought me in. He said, would you talk to this audience about accountability and about study? And so it's okay. And I had a translator. So I'm on the island of Java and I'm speaking to this room full of clergy and I give a talk where just like what you just said, but from the, the clergy position, I made the case that if you believe you're called to service through a pastor position in church leadership uh, in the clergy, and you do not believe that that is a life of accountability or a life of study of both of those things, then I suggest that you have not been called into this service because the, that is a life of study and a life of accountability. You will always be accountable to others and you need to have that. And you will always be studying to make yourself prepared to help the people who are going to need the kind of counsel and wisdom that you can provide only if you take very seriously your responsibility to be prepared to give it. And the audience turned on me and was yelling at me <laughs> and, and, and got very hostile. And to the point where they were trying to boo me off of the stage. And when it was over, they were happy that I was done. And then the guy, this very soft-spoken Indonesian gentleman who brought me there for that, this pastor, stepped forward and took them on. He was, he was amazing. He walks in my translator telling me what he's saying. He walks up after I'm done and he says, Mr. Watts has laid out what I think is an ironclad argument for accountability and study. <laughs> he said, now, if you want to argue about it, take me on right here in front of everybody. And so I, I asked him, I said, what the heck happened, man? I didn't have any, why were they so mad? And he said, when they gave me a list of people that could come and speak at this conference, and I saw that you talked about abortion and that you spoke publicly, I knew that you were somebody that could handle being hated. And he said that one of the great abuses of, of Christianity here is that people become Christian leaders and then they become cult leaders, basically, because they have no accountability and they take no interest in actually learning what it means to be a leader in Christ. All they are are cults of personalities that gather leaders and divide people or gather crowds and divide people. He said, so I wanted you up there because I knew that you would say what was necessary to be said. And that even when they started hating you, you wouldn't back down. He said, but I didn't want to tell you that that's why you were here because I didn't want you to, to be worried about when the talk started. So it, but it was that idea of setting standards. And I love, that's why I, what you were saying, get back what you were saying that this is what it means to be a good physician. These are the kind of things that you must be committed to attending to such that, if you don't have any interest in those and you only have interest in those other things, then you are not called to be a physician. You may in your mind be called to be loved, famous. You may be called to be rich, powerful, influential. In your mind, those are different things, right? But a physician is a higher calling that requires a different kind of dedication to your fellow man. And that's what you need to attend to and to, to be able to commit to if you're going to be a physician, the same way clergy have to be accountable and have to study. Amen. I think that's exactly right. You know, I, I think that also uh, that helps us to answer a question that I think you raised a little bit earlier, uh, at least implicitly. And what does it mean to be a good patient? Right? Yes. And we talk about we talk about the doctor-patient relationship, and we talk about the commitments that the physician has made, and the knowledge that the physician has, and all the ways in which the physician can help. And that's certainly a kind of asymmetric relationship, right? It seems like the doctor is willing, the patient's good, 
But how can, I mean, as, as would be the case in what Aristotle would call a friendship of virtue, how can the patient will the physician's good? How can they both have right, a, a set of shared ends that encompass the good of both parties and not just the patient, right? Why isn't it just, we're both doing this for you? Um, in what way can the patient also will the physician's good? And I think right, everything that you've just said gives us the answer to that. Right? Doing, right? Meeting your commitments, your professional commitments as a physician or as a priest or as a lawyer or as a teacher for that matter is what's your good if that's what you've been called to do. Right, Being a good doctor is perfective of you as a human being and that's what patients should want of their doctors. They should obviously want to be helped and cured if that's possible, right? but it's not always possible and even when it's not possible, they should also want that their physicians are acting as good doctors because that's good for their physicians or for the physicians well-being and not just for themselves yes. and that's contrary to you know i think the the provider of services model sets up sets up a kind of antagonistic relationship where the patient is demanding and the physician is obeying and it sets up the potentiality for a kind of manipulative relationship where the the patient needs to manipulate the, the doctor to do what what he or she wants and i think our the vision that we're trying to promote is one that is, in one sense, certainly primarily for the good of the patient, but doesn't leave aside the good of the physician because the good of the physician just is meeting their vocational commitments in, a, in an appropriate and upright way. And there's, there was a story, I mean, this may have been a decade and a half ago, or it was, a, it was a little thing written by Philip Yancey, I think it was in Christianity Today, and when they used to do those like Philip Yancey things in the back, of there because they saved that little gym for the end there and he but he talked about one time talking to his doctor and he said his doctor gave him a list of things that he couldn't do after he had an issue and and he said well i'm going to be playing golf this weekend with my friends is that something that i can do and his doctor's response was that won't make me very happy and he said and if i remember philip nancy writing what do i care if he's happy Right. What, it's not, I'm not attending to my physician's happiness. The question is, can I play or not? But he said the more he thought about that answer when he got home, the more it led him to not play golf. Because hmm. as he got past this idea of the doctor phrasing it in a way that he didn't like, the doctor wasn't giving a demand on him saying absolutely not, because that wasn't the physician's place. He couldn't control him and tell him what he could right. and could not do. So when the doctor's response was, well, that wouldn't make me very happy. And he mulled that over for a while. He said, all this man cares about is that I'm healthy. That's what that's what he's looking for. And when when I ask the question, can I go play golf? And he responds, well, that's not going to make me happy. What he's saying is that's not going to be attending to your health. You're going to be doing something that will undo some of the work we've already done, threaten to, to set us back. And, and it took him, he said, a mo I just always remember that. He said, because that first response is, what do I care if you're happy? I just want to play golf. And then he had to think about what his doctor meant when he said that wouldn't make him happy. What he meant was it wasn't going to be attending to your health. It was going to be more just a selfish desire to attend to your, your you want to hang out and play with your friends. Uh, and so I thought I was just thinking about that when you were talking about being a good patient, Philip Yancey wrestling with whether or not he wants to make his doctor happy or not. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, we don't, I think we just don't, we're not accustomed to thinking about what would it mean for me to be a good patient any more than we really think about what it means for us to be a good customer, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't we don't go into Home Depot, right, wondering what 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 the moral requirements are on us for for being a good customer of Home Depot. We just go in with a sense of entitlement that if we've got the money, we can get what we what we want. Um, I think it's maybe worth just saying a little bit about uh, where we think that I mean, sort of the, what the intellectual underpinnings of that model are. And we think that it's really an excessive valorization of the idea of autonomy. Yeah. It has sort of been, you know, run centrally through Western intellectual currents for the last several hundred years. Um, you know, what was at one point in in the thought of, of you know, Immanuel Kant, right, the idea that an autonomous action is thereby a right action, but only because in acting autonomously, you're acting in accordance with the idea of law has now become, for us, the idea that autonomous action is a correct action because you're acting in accordance with your most authentic self. Yeah. Um, and, and we think that that's really, I mean, that's, that's a terrible moral view, right? The idea that actions can be made right simply in virtue of their being autonomous. Um, and it's also, it's, it brings about a kind of internal contradiction when you're thinking about medicine because what it translates into is if I've autonomously decided that this is what I want as a patient, you as my physician need to provide it. Yeah. And it's not really clear how that respects the autonomy of the physician, right? You, again, the provider of services model seems to move towards a kind of conflict of rights, the patient's right versus the, the physician's rights, when everything is framed in terms of what I autonomously am demanding or entitled to. Yeah, and the demand of the rights, it, it, it it undermines basically the the idea that the physician is a human interacting in this with moral responsibilities themselves, that they exist solely to fulfill the autonomous demands of the patient. And and you mentioned in the book, and I've, I've actually written about this as well, particularly about physician-assisted suicide, because Brittany Menard comes up a lot when you talk about mm -hmm. that because her story was so powerful. And I had done an article with Christian Research Journal on this many years ago when at the time that all that happened. And we're saying that our, our obsession with autonomy and misses the fact that autonomy was just one of the things that was being considered in all of these. And now it is the only one, right? There was non-malfeasance, there was beneficence, there was justice. There was all these different things that we had to consider in balancing out autonomy against those things as we we're making moral decisions with that framework in mind. If we're going to go that way, those were those other things that had to be considered. And now there's only autonomy, right? Everything else has faded away and the world exists to satisfy demand, my demands, whatever they are, as long as my demands are, as you said, an expression of my authentic self. Um, I think, uh, you know, the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self uh, is, is just a great book about that. But that idea of uh, as long and, and I and only I know what the authentic expression of what I is, right? What, what used to be, I talk about this a lot in other places, Self-reports used to be seen as a weakness in arguments because they were the kind of thing that couldn't be objectively evaluated, right? What, what I like or what I don't like, I, I, those were the kind of things that were useless in a public discourse because they're the kind of things that aren't open to intellectual evaluation by others from an objective standard. I, you just have to trust what I say when I say I like this or feel like this or I identify as that. But now it's the trump card. Right? It's epistemically privileged. Way. That's right. You, you can't, the fact that the weakness of what it was in public discourse has become the strength of what it is in self-identification. You can't tell me what I am or what the true authentic of my nature of what myself is. Only I can determine that and I can communicate to you. And your job 
is to affirm it, not to discuss it as if it's up for uh, discussion or to have a debate about it. Yeah, exactly right. And so we, I mean, we think that uh, an important corrective to that is to go back to an idea that autonomy is at least superficially in some tension with, and that's the idea of authority. Right? And you can see, I mean, the history of the last 400 years is one in which autonomy has begun to overshadow the idea that there's any such thing as authority. But we think that there's really, there's two forms of authority in the doctor-patient relationship. And we think that if you frame that relationship in terms of an understanding of those two forms of authority, it starts to dissolve some of this antagonism that the pure autonomy model generates. Yeah. So the physician, the physician obviously has a, a kind of authority based on his or her expertise. They have the authority of expertise. They know what will benefit the health of the patient and they know what's not. Right? They know that golfing is not going to be good for the health of the patient, right? And they know that this intervention or that intervention is. But as we were, as we were saying earlier um, in our discussion, health is just one dimension of a well-lived life. And the patient really has the best understanding of how the particular benefits and burdens that are offered with any healthcare intervention that's, that's being uh, proposed by a physician, the patient has the best understanding of where those benefits and burdens are going to fit into the overall, let's say, vocation of the patient's life. Mm -hmm. um, so just to give a, a, a quick example, um, when I was in graduate school, I used to play a lot of basketball. I didn't play it very well. Uh, I played it with people who were bigger and better than me, and I, I paid the price for that. Um, I, I ruptured some sort of tendon down in my, in my ankle, and I went to the I... doctor. It was terrible. It was very painful. The doctor said, well, um, there is a surgery that could fix that, and it's going to cost you X amount of dollars, which was an amount of dollars that was not part of my stipend. Um, he said, or you can, you, know, you can stop playing basketball, and probably over the next five or 10 years, you'll develop enough scar tissue that it won't bother you anymore. Um, and I really would have liked to play more basketball. I really would have liked to get that surgery, but I didn't have the money and I had commitments to my wife and my then young child. Yeah. Um, I had, you know, my primary calling was academic. I needed to put my focus on learning more about Kant at that time. Yeah. Um, and so it was sort of, it was, it was up to me, the ball was in my court to say yes or no to what the physician was offering. And to say it in light of the overall structure of my vocation. And so what we argue in the book is that while the physician has the authority to propose to the patient on the basis of his or her expertise in health and commitment to that good, the patient has the authority to say yes or no to that proposal. Right? The patient, you know, thinking in terms of the overall structure of the patient's life and the vocational calling of the patient, that's the standpoint from which the patient has authority to say yes or no. And we think that's a that I mean we think that has a lot to be said for it in terms of how you divide up authority within the doctor-patient relationship, but it illustrates something that the autonomy model just seems to to us to get wrong, which is that the patient's authority is an authority to say yes or no to what's being offered by the physician. It's not an authority that entitles the patient to make a demand that you must do this or you must do that. Yes. There are reasonable expectations, right? Because the physician has a vocation and the patient knows that. But the, the form of authority is not the form of, of primary entitlement, right? That I can decide what it is that you're going to do for me. It's an authority for me to say no, right? If I think what you're offering is not the right thing for me, but to say yes, if what you think is called for for my help, I think is also called for in the structure of my life. I have a, um, 
a close a close friend who had an ankle like severe ankle, basketball induced right he played basketball his whole life loved basketball but you just roll your ankle a lot in basketball it's just ankle mm-hmm. injuries are are part of it and so he had to get a robotic ankle and and what was going on when the doctor was talking about it, I was thinking about that way you were saying it because he said the doctor explained to him the different paths but it was very medically explained and so my friend was listening to him as he was explaining it. And then he said, well, I mean, you made it sound like if I get the ankle replacement, it may not work, uh, but there's a chance that it will. But if I don't get the ankle replacement, I'm going to be limited in what I can do. And the percent, and he was running through all the medical information being given. And so he asked the doctor, he said, so which one would you do? Would you just let it stay as it is? Or would you go for the medical, even though there's a high percentage chance, or at least a 50-50 chance that it's not going to do anything to help? And the doctor answered, well, I like walking, so I would get the procedure. <laughs> and that, like my friend said, and that was the moment it became crystal clear for him, right? The, the discussion had been done in such medical terminology that he didn't fully understand the options he was being offered. But then one of the options was, well, if this works, you'll be able to walk normally. And, that, and so his doctor said, well, I like walking, so I would get it done just because there's a chance I could keep walking. If we don't do this, you're not going to be able to walk normal for the rest of your life. Uh, and that, that was that moment for my friend that the clarity of the options that he has been off offered came in and the doctor just was not going to make that decision for him. That was like, he can't make that decision. He can't tell him what to do, but my <clears> friend <throat> had to keep pushing and prodding and asking questions until it was finally given to him in a way that he understood the options he was being offered, right? You're going to walk with a limp for the rest of your life probably, or here's a, a chance that you won't take the chance that you won't, even though it has a high, a, a long period of recovery afterwards. This is, uh, this is just a huge area of vexation and concern for, for far for my, my colleague. Uh, I mean, with the provider services model goes this extreme kind of non-interventionism on the part of the physician where it seems yeah. like you're doing something wrong if you're giving advice. Um, but what, you know, let's grant that the patient has the authority to make the final decision about what, what's going to be done or not done. What good authority doesn't take advice from other people, right? Yeah. If you're, if you're an authority and you're in the business of just making up your mind without paying attention to what other people would advise, you're, you're going to do a pretty bad job. Uh, right. and so we think that, you know, it, it is absolutely part of our story that, um, physicians should be encouraged to offer their, their own views, mindful of the limits of their, their own authority. Um, but that's really, that could be very essential for patients being able to make up their mind in an intelligent and fully informed way. And that can be, that can absolutely be obscured by, you know, medical lingo and by a desire to not seem like you're pushing in one way or another. We, we just don't think that, um, you know, any more than, you know, again, to go back to a classroom analogy, Right. I, I can't make my students think anything. Yeah. Right. But but at the same time, it's not quite right that I just sort of put up a bunch of things on the board and then say to the students, you pick. Right. Um, I have things to say about the arguments of this philosopher or the arguments of that philosopher or this particular position or that particular position. Um, and it, I think it would be, you know, it would be a failure of my professional responsibilities if everything had to be presented in the most completely neutral way possible. It can't be it's coercive, but it can't be neutral at the same time. Yeah. And when you don't have any of the medical expertise, whatever we may think about our ability to go to WebMD and, and all of a sudden become doctors. I mean, there's a point where you don't have the medical expertise and 
Now, I again, I have had great doctors in all of our experience with my wife and I through all of the different medical experiences with the medical field. But in every single case, I feel like at some point or another, both my wife and I in these conversations will come down to a point where we have to say, if it were you, what would you do? If it were your daughter, what would you do? If it were your wife, what would you do, right? Yeah, I, I get you have laid out the options and I appreciate it. But what I'm asking now is what you think is the best option because you're smarter at this than I am, right? You, you understand what we're talking about better than I do. And this is, and when we're talking about it, when you go back to that concept of vulnerabilities, when we're talking about certain medical treatments, we are literally talking about some of the most important decisions we will ever make in our lives that will impact us differently than it's different than do I go to you know, Lamadeline now, or do I go to McDonald's or what do I eat this at this moment? These are decisions that will have long lasting impact on my health, ability to function and all of those things. And so there has always been a sort of, as we like to say around here, come to Jesus moment with our doctors where we've had to say, I appreciate everything that you've said and laying out the, ob like you're some sort of reporter that can't take sides. But right now, what I need to know from you is if it were you, what would you do? Right. What do you think is the best path forward? Not just all the available paths, but the best path. And now every time I've, I've laid it out that way, the doctors have told me what they want, what they would do. And they've been clear with me. But it almost always took that kind of a conversation at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I mean, Far thinks that that that's really a function of how physicians are being trained to think of what it is that they're all about. I think, you know, if you if you. I think what, what you see emerge from this picture of sort of shared authority, right, as part of the doctor-patient relationship is on, on the one hand, right, authority does take advice into consideration. So it's not this, you know, neutral framework that the provider of services model offers. Authority has limits, right? We, we all know that uh, if, the, if the government tells you to, you know, go and jump off a bridge, it has no authority to, to do that. Um, and this is true in this domain as well. Patient authority is limited. Yep. But I think a third thing that's important to to sort of this this overall picture that we're developing that um, that plays also an important role from the physician standpoint is that it, it is also the case that people in authority sometimes make decisions, make judgments that are not the right one, but that don't mean that their authority has ceased. Right? Yep. So you're a parent. And so am I. And I, in, in, a, in a quieter, honest moment, I'm willing to admit that occasionally, even though I do have genuine authority over my children, it's possible that I have, I have erred in well, exercising yeah. it. Every well, now and then, not, not often, right? I've made mistakes. That, now, that doesn't mean that I don't have authority, right? And yeah. there are cases in which even if I've made a, an error about what it is that we're going to do, still, you know, the family should, should go along. A physician doesn't need to agree with everything that a patient decides. In some cases, there are going to be situations where the patient says no and the physician thinks, no, you really should say yes. And the patient continues to say no because the patient has genuine authority. There are going to be situations in which the physician has to, has to say, OK, I accept that um, that this is your, your final judgment. I may not agree with it, but I acknowledge that you do have genuine authority in this decision making space that we're that we're a part of. I think that's that's beneficial for seeing some of what the what the paternalism model started to, to leave out in its most extreme forms. And, and I'll tell you what, you brought to mind a, in a, in a, a terrible situation that happened to somebody that I know where they had a child that got a, a very negative prenatal diagnosis. And so, um, and so what happened was the prevailing wisdom of the medical group they were talking to 
was that they ought to abort the child and they were not going mm. to do it. And when you say that, that they, when they disagree, they need to respect what those people shared with me was that what followed was just a tremendous amount of pressure from every single person involved in that medical, the, the nurses, that doctor, everyone for the course of the next few minutes, however long they were there, how they were, they were discussing this, would come in taking turns, pressuring them to make that decision, right? Did not, not respecting their decision that they would allow this child to be born, even with those diagnoses and being assured that this child would have a miserable life. By the way, the child is, you know, does have a lot of medical issues and is also a very happy, productive mm -hmm. human being that, that does enjoy being alive. And they're 18 now, I believe. But as they shared this story, what they talked about was the, uh, the, just this constant building pressure. You're doing the wrong thing. You're doing the wrong thing to the point that when they finally stood up and said, you need to, you all need to stop and leave us alone mm -hmm. on this. We've made our decision. A nurse came in later after everybody had left and left them alone and told them, you are the first person that I have ever seen withstand that pressure. Everybody else who comes under this pressure eventually bows to it and gets the abortion. I told them that you're the first people we've ever seen. And the, the, the nurse that was talking to him was crying because she said that she's seen mm. it happen over and over with this particular doctor that when they get a diagnosis of that they think is a less than optimal life for the child that's going to be born, they just go full court pressure on trying to get these people to give up on this and, and, and get an abortion. And so that's an important part about like the doctor being able to accept in this relationship between the two that the that they're not always going to be listened to and being able to just say, now there's more to it, obviously, in that issue. I mean, I, I, you know, that's that's a doctor right. that's trying, and, and from where I come from, trying to get somebody to do something that's grossly immoral, right? But right. At, at the same time, there's a sense that I won't, they won't accept the decision. And so the, it, it, it manifests itself in pressure, pressure, pressure to do what I want you to do or else you're failing your role as a patient. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think the, the model that we're laying out sort of identifies where the lines are, right? Where the authority of one of the two parties ends and the authority of the other party begins. And so where it is that you're crossing a line on the part of the patient, right? If you're demanding, you must do this, you must provide the abortion, or if you're the doctor and saying you must have the abortion. Um, and of course, that, that raises a larger question that we, we spend a fair amount of time on in the second half of the book. And should doctors be um, should they be even apart from questions of authority? Should they be recommending or promoting abortions in the first place, compatible yep. with their vocational commitments? Um, I think you and I, you know, you and I share a, a view of the sanctity of human life um, yep. that you know that delivers a pretty quick and straightforward moral answer to <laughs> that question. Um, but you know, one of the things that we do try to do is to situate that question also within the professional vocational commitments that a, a physician has made to the good of, of health. And it seems you know, to us, whatever you think about the morality of abortion, right, in itself, it does not seem to be a health serving operation, right? It's clearly yeah. detrimental to the, to the health of the, of the, the child. Um, and so we think that there's a case to be made even before you get to these larger issues of 
moral status and personhood and the right to life and the sanctity of life, even before you get to that, there's a, there's a case to be made simply from within which what you might think of as the, the internal ethics of medicine that aspects, you know, technical procedures that you could, um, you could undertake that in themselves seem like they're contrary to human health, abortion, sterilization, physician assistance in, in dying of the wide variety of sorts that are now on offer in various places, um, various bodily mutilations that are desired by patients. Even before you get to the larger moral issues, um, it should be clear why for many physicians, these are just, these just seem contrary to what they're all about as physicians. These are not private moral judgments that are being brought in and affecting their professional judgment. These are genuine professional judgments that they're making as physicians on the basis of their professional vocational commitments. And I think if you start to frame the issue in that way, then it leads us to sort of rethink what has become a really important dilemma for a lot of um, public thought about physician conscience, the so-called Con conflict between private conscience of physicians and the public demands of their of their profession. Yeah. We think that just completely misframes the the situation. When a physician says, I, "I don't offer abortion, right, because I think that it's contrary to the health of at least one of my patients in this instance," right, that's not a private judgment. That is the physician's professional judgment that runs as a re direct result of their commitment to the value of health in that doctor-patient relationship. Yeah, and, and the idea, and before we get into some of those other issues, there's one thing I wanted to say and give you a chance to speak to uh, however much you wanted to. I think, personally, that your book should be read, if for no other reason than for most people to have to read the chapter on double effect. Because <laughs> it is one of the, when, when I talk to audiences, and I've had the opportunity to talk to audiences from you know high school, university, professional organizations, conferences, that one of the least understood uh, reason, moral reasoning points is that idea of double effect. And I thought you guys did such a great job of, of placing it within as we start to evaluate these different actual moments of decisions and, and that have to be made. And as we talked physician assisted suicide, as you talked about mutilating healthy organs, uh, as we talked about abortion and uh, contraception, all of these different things and what they do before you do that, you talk about double effect. And it is one of the least understood principles that is so vital to being able to negotiate the world that we live in as far as oftentimes how we morally understand uh, the, the series of, as you talk about, the series of choices of what we intend and what the consequences are, or the side effects are that we can't help as we go through that process. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, I, we think that physicians can't live without double effect. I mean, suppose that you, you do genuinely take your foundational commitment to be to the health of, of your patients. And then you thought to yourself, well, that means that I should never do anything that is going to in any way negatively bear on my patient's health. Right. Um, that's an unsustainable yeah. commitment, right? You, yeah. you, can, you, you have a patient with cancer and so you offer them chemotherapy right? Or you offer them watchful waiting, right? Watchful waiting is going to bring detriment to the health, but so is the chemotherapy, right? It works you know, partly because it's, at the same time that it's killing the cancer cells, it's also killing healthy cells. Um, you can't sustain a commitment to in no way bring about negative health 
consequences. Yeah. But you can, you can, and I think we argue absolutely should sustain a commitment to never intend harm to a patient's health, right? Yeah. So that the harms that you bring about are always brought about as a side effect, right? You have to have good enough reason to bring those, those about as a side effect. And that just bears across so many different issues in medicine. If you're the patient and you're looking, I mean, for me, if I'm, you know, if I say no to the surgery for my ankle, right, that means that my ankle is going to be unhealthy, Right. But yep. that's a side effect of my, you know, not spending the money that would have had a detrimental effect on my on my family life. Double effect, we think, is just we think it's essential for life, <laughs> yeah. but it's absolutely essential for for a physician's um, a physician's being able to operate with professional integrity in a world in which, you know, negative consequences are tied up with the good things that you intend, you know, often in a just inevitable way. Yeah, and that's the, the the double effect when we say that is that there are there are times and when we talk about it a lot, it comes up in prex, uh, questions like about two block topic pregnancy mm -hmm. in front of audiences. And so there are times where uh, if we do nothing, if we take the I refuse to do anything that will cause harm approach, we will lose two lives. And this it is it is what we're going to watch. We're going to sit back and watch two human lives end. So if we take the approach uh, that we're going to do the best that we can with the bad situation we've been confronted with, and, and what is the most moral path that we can find through this, is that we can take life-saving measures to preserve the life of the mother, and we know that when we do that, it is going to result in the death of the child. That's the, the double effect, right? The intended mm -hmm. action was life-preserving action. What we're seeking is to preserve life. This, this action that we take has a side effect of un the, the unfortunate death of one of the lives. Both were going to be lost. Now we're going to do what we can to save one of them. And, and you bring it up. You say it almost exactly as I say it in the book. You say it as I say it in front of audiences. I assure you, if physicians could take that child out of that tube and place them into the uterus and it, everything be healthy, they would do it every time. No one wants the child to die. That's, that's not what any of us want. But in this situation, we're given the choice between doing nothing and, and facing certain death for two lives or doing something to preserve life that we know will have a side effect of the end of one of those lives. But that's not our intention. We're not intentionally destroying life. We're not, we're not and as you point out, we're not accomplishing the means of saving life by intentionally destroying another life. We're just doing what must be done to preserve one life. And that just means that we're not going to be able to continue to preserve the life of a child, just not capable of surviving at that point of development through this procedure. That's right. And even in the way that you described it, it makes, I think, very effectively the point that I was trying to make. You can do nothing and you'll lose two lives, or you can do yep. something and you'll lose one life. But whatever you do, there will be negative health consequences. It's impossible to live in the world in such a way that you know, whatever you do has no negative consequences. In this case, not saving does have negative consequences. One thing that I think is really important to see, and you can contrast this with, I think, with many more standard cases of abortion and with other cases that are clearly cases of intended killing, is ask yourself when we're, when we're you know, addressing the ectopic pregnancy, um, whether by removing a bit of the, the fallopian tube with the embryo in it, or even by 
making an incision and removing the embryo from it. Is the death of that human being accomplishing any of what we're trying to accomplish? And the answer is clearly no, right? Yeah. The death is not serving your ends in any way whatsoever. If I want the inheritance from Uncle John, right, and I poison his coffee, right, the death is definitely it's yeah. serving my ends, right? It's by means of the death that I'm going to get what I want. The death secures end, you the inheritance, yeah. And it secures me the inheritance. And if what I want, I mean, it's a, it's a sad thing to, to say, but I think it's right. If what I want is not to be a mother or a father or a parent, um, then I think it is the death of the child in an abortion that is securing what it is that I'm trying to accomplish, the, the status of not being a mother or not being a father yeah. or not being a, a parent. And so you can see a difference between these life-saving procedures where double effect is clearly in play, where the death is a side effect, it's not something that's intended, and more straightforward cases of, of abortion, where it does seem that what's intended is the death of the, of the child, because that is itself specifically what brings about the goal that one is seeking. And, and that's where we come, and a lot of times when audiences are trying, when they bring that up, they're trying to get me in sort of a gotcha moment. They say, well, so mm -hmm. you do support abortion. I was like, well, if, if I defined abortion as the intentional destruction of innocent human life, this doesn't qualify when we're talking about the double effect. I do not intend to destroy life. It's not what I want, uh, as opposed to those, as you said, the death secures the ends. That's not what's going on here. And such that I usually point out, so, whether you're religious or not, whether you're Catholic or not, uh, John, Paul, John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae gave clear thought and exp of what it means to, in his mind, we're talking, when we're talking about abortion, he said these kind of procedures don't even count as abortion because that's not under the definition of abortion that we're operating on. It's not like a pro-life position or as Christopher Kayser calls the inclusive view of human life or, or when we're talking about those things, it's not as if we don't understand that death is a part of life uh, and that it's not sometimes necessary. What we're talking about is specifically the intentional and unjust taking of life. And that's not what, what happens in these procedures. And that, that's why I say that chapter when I read that, I, saw, I wanted to just like call people and say, everybody should read it for that chapter. You need to understand this better so that I don't have to go through what I go through in Q&A every single time. When people ask, I gotcha, you do support abortion. Like, no, you don't. You don't understand double effect. Let's talk about that. Yeah. No, I think that's, you know, I think we get, um, we get hung up on this definitional question, partly because the the definition is used in a very shifting way by people in order to obscure what's really at issue. And I think when we yeah. focus on this question of intentional killing, right, then we get we get a, a very distinct kind of clarity that is important for this issue. Oh, and, and on a side note, William Salatin years ago wrote an article at Slate where he was accusing uh, Tim Tebow's mother of aborting the pregnancy of Tebow by inducing labor at 30 weeks or something like that. And he's like, so pro-lifers, they, they're fine with it. And, and he kept talking about labor and inducing labor at 30 weeks, in which I had responded to him in, in an article where I pointed out, I was like, well, did you bother to talk to physicians? Why Wasn't it odd that both of these labor inducements happened at 30 weeks or between 30 and 31 weeks? Did you bother to find out why? What development happened? These are not... The end of pregnancy is not necessarily an abortion. It's birth. That was what was happening at that point. We're not we're not terminating pregnancy by inducing early labor when we've allowed them to develop to the point where they can live a rel you know, relatively healthy medically li life at that point early in their life. Uh, even if there's complications, we're good at dealing with it at 30 to 31 weeks. And we're going to be 
have healthy children. And just the, the, the obfuscation of, of pregnancy termination being equated with mm -hmm. inducement was just, it was, I was, it was nuts to me. I, I, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about other than just that idea of how sometimes people use language and he's a smart man. I mean, he's, he's a, a very smart guy. guy. You're a very smart guy. You know better than this. This has this is just an axe to grind right now, and you're not thinking things through. Well, I mean, while we're you know while we're grinding axes, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I think making that point is it's important for for us on the pro life side too. And I don't have anything in particular in mind, but um, you know, we we need to make sure that when when we're speaking, we're speaking directly and clearly, and not using language to obscure. Um, yes. The things that we, you know, that we identify in our intellectual opponents as intellectual vices, you know, I think we just need to always be careful that we're, we're mindful of the, the possibility of ourselves using those as well and making yes. sure that we're not doing that. Yeah. And, and it's, you see some of my friends go through this where they torture themselves about how we refer to, is it unborn? Is it preborn? And, and I used to mm -hmm. get these, these people very angry with me because I often talk about it in terms of feeders fetal human beings and embryonic human beings. And so I, I, I'm not going to shy away from those terms. It's just yeah. a developmental stage it's, it, and it's accurate. I mean, you're talking about wanting to kill a fetal human being or you're talking about wanting to kill an embryonic human being. It's still a human life. I don't see why using that as dehumanizing. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, I ended up using offspring a lot when I talk about the uh, killing them before they're born because people would wig out if you ever use the word child or things. <laughs> so we go through, you're right, the same game of trying to make sure I am being as clear as possible. And I've always tried to make the case when I've had to argue this with people that it, it morally doesn't matter, right? At the end of the day, you're still talking about killing a human right. life, whether it's a fetal life, an embryonic life, whether I call it an offspring or a child, however I address it, the, which we have to deal with is the act itself and the results of that act. And we will, we'll, I can find language that you'll be comfortable with, but you're never going to be comfortable confronting the issue because it's the act of what's going on. It's answering the question, what is actually happening through the act of abortion that you don't like to answer, not the words I'm using, but I'll play the game as much as you want to, just to, to be as clear and as non, I guess what's the word, not as, as unprovocative as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. Okay, I, think uh, we agree. I didn't mean to derail you by by going to double effect. So let, moving. No, forward, that was I. You know, uh, there's there's no, nothing I like more actually. If so, in fact, last last week, I don't think this is privileged information. Um, I spent last week at Wake Forest uh, doing a week long seminar. In fact, Chris Kazor was was one of the folks there. Uh, there were ten of us who were presenting workshop paper, workshopping papers on on abortion, um, and my presentation was was on double effect and life saving abortions. Um, which I think is there's still, you know, especially in the aftermath of Dobbs, there's a lot of questions that are being yes. raised that we need to just, you know, keep addressing one after another. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that and that was a big hit where they came out. I had to write an article right right after it came out of the the ways that there there was misinformation, mischaracterizing all of these, the, how these laws impacted women who had two blocktopic mm -hmm. pregnancies. Right. Uh, were, were women going to be dying as a result of, of lack of treatment? Uh, were doctors going to be able, uh, afraid to perform life-saving uh, procedures because they were going to be prosecuted? So yeah, that, in the wake of Dobbs and the fall of Roe, it wasn't even, it was an intentional uh, desire to to, to muddy the water, right, about, to, and to generate fear. I mean, fear was 
sort of the the word of the year last year on this issue. It was mm-hmm. just fear. Generate fear as much as you can. Make everybody afraid. Uh, and it was it was nice to be. I felt like it was when we talked about calling earlier. It was I was very comfortable as a Christian and my calling spending the year doing as much as I possibly could to say uh, in as many different ways that I don't think a society that has greater commitments to the value of human life is going to be one you're going to hate living in. I think it's going to be one. There obviously are things that we're going to have to work out, but that mm-hmm. it's better for us all if we just see every human life that we come into contact with at any form as something that deserves basic respect. And we find a way to serve its flourishing as opposed to seeing other human beings as either competition for resources, frustrations that would keep me from seeking my own goals, uh, uh, something I can't deal with as they get older and, and a, an impediment on me being able to live freely as they deal with their end of life issues. All of these things are just horrible ways to understand our human family. Uh, so I, I I do feel like on a side note that that is a, a, a an upside of, of the job that we do, because I like the idea that at the end of the day, the message is treat everybody, every human life as well as you can. Uh, and when we have hard issues, because they're going to be there, there's going to be hard issues. We need to think through them carefully and do the best that we can to come to decisions that honor the dignity of every life involved uh, and not just the easiest route out. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, it illustrates that those of us who've been thinking about these issues for a long time and discussing them as, as you have and I have, you know, that create certain responsibilities in the upcoming years when these are going to be very pressing concerns for a lot of people and we need to be able to make these distinctions. And I, I love the way that you that you put it, um, a world in which every human being is welcome. How can that possibly be a worse world yeah. than the one that we live in? Yeah, and and and, I, and, and you, young students, it's interesting in high schools that they'll come up and, and and they'll immediately respond when they're talking about questions like overpopulation or things like that. And I say, well, you, you, you've got to stop. Somebody has taught you to see human beings as a problem to be dealt with, and I yeah. want you to think of a world where human beings are the problem solvers that are making it all better. That when we work together, we can come up with some incredible solutions. So stop looking at everybody as a problem that you need to overcome and look at the people around you as the very people that are gonna help all of us overcome these issues and build a better world. Uh, and so I, I just think you're not optimistic enough, man. I, mean, I think you just are, you've been taught to be very cynical about where we're headed. And I'm telling you, I think we can do a lot more if we work together, then just be afraid of what another human being means as far as what it's going to deny me from being able to get to. Um, but that, this is a huge sidetrack. I apologize for that. Not at all. No, <laughs> uh, you're, I, I think we're, we're on the same page on this. All right. So I'd like to, to in, in, out of respect for your time, and um, I'd like to get to if you have specific issues that you want to talk about. We've, we've set the stage for the way of medicine We've set the stage for the physician's responsibility to pursue the health of the patient, for the patient's responsibility to make decisions, but decisions informed by the expertise of the physician. We talked a little bit about double effect uh, and how that affects the physician, that they can't possibly work as a physician without in some way or another bringing about negative side effects, but how those need to be necessary in order to pursue a greater goal in the health of the patient. So if there's some specifics that you'd like to talk about now uh, and to, to move on as we move into like the last stage, let's call it that. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I think we've covered, I mean, you know, we could, we could, of course, we could talk for forever about the specifics of, of abortion and, and physician aid and dying. Um, 
But I think you see the, the way in which our view emerges from our understanding of medicine. And then I guess the one thing that we didn't really mention, and it's worth, it has clear bearing on these issues. Other, other people, other philosophers of medicine and bioethicists have occasionally done something similar to what, what we've done. So Leon Cass and Edmund yes. Pellegrino would be, would, you know, would be good instances of this, where they try and develop an understanding of what the nature of medicine is, and then try and see what ethics emerges from that nature of medicine. So I, I referred to it earlier as the internal ethics of, of medicine. And one of the things that we do in the book and keep coming back to, especially in the context of abortion and euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, is, is to say, okay, so we've got this internal ethic that emerges from what we call the practice of medicine, but you could imagine a practice that has its own internal ethic that isn't a good practice, right? So maybe there's yeah. a, you know, a professional torture association in some horrible country, and they've got their own internal ethics. They've got you know, a professional code that they all stand by. Um, but that practice, that profession, would not be sustained in the face of sort of full-out, all-in ethical reflection, right? If you took the, the broadest possible ethical approach I mean, we think of it as a natural law approach, but we also talk about C.S. Lewis's The Tao from yes. The Abolition of Man. Um, you, if you think about this from the standpoint of, you know, a, a complete ethical reflection, can what we say about the physician's profession be sustained in a way that, you know, the torturer's profession could not be? And, and we think, obviously, that the answer is yes. I mean, Medicine is, it's obvious we talked about this before, it, it addresses genuine human needs in a way that torture doesn't. But over and over again, I think what we find is that specific norms that emerge from the medical profession, so the norm not to intentionally harm, right, um, which yeah. then also has bearing on intentional killing, um, the norm, norms about solidarity with your patients, norms governing the fairness of your treatment of different patients for whom you might have more or less personal affection, and the norm even of thinking about medicine as a large-scale vocational commitment that's going to have a large uh, organizational impact on the way that you live your life. All of these features of medicine understood from within medicine are also borne out uh, at the larger level of sort of full-out ethical reflection. And so we make a case that as a physician, you shouldn't be in the business of doing or performing abortions or sterilizations, but also there's a case in the natural law or the Tao to be made for that. As a physician, you shouldn't be in the business of hastening your patient's death, right? but also from the larger natural law standpoint, there's a strong argument to be made for that. And I think that's a, um, I wouldn't say it's a novelty because everything I think that we're saying has been said once, one, one way or another by the uh, foremost practitioners of medicine and the foremost philosophers of medicine and ethics before. But I think it is, it's an important part of what we do that we draw these two things together, sort of more abstract ethical reflection on the one hand, but also deeply embedded sort of first order critical reflection on the nature of medicine from the standpoint of especially Farr, who is an actual, he doesn't just play a doctor on TV, he is an actual doctor. <laughs> um, and I think that's, a, that's, uh, that's one of the things that I think has really pleased me about both the partnership between Farr and myself and about the, the way that the book turned out is that we were able to sustain this throughout. And I'll just tell a, I mean, a, a funny story that that really shaped the way that we wrote the book and the way that we started thinking about what we were doing. 
maybe in the fifth or sixth year that we were teaching the seminar, you know, Far will do a session and then I'll do a session and then Far will do a session and I'll do a session. And a guy who was then a student, a med student at Yale, he said, you know, Far keeps saying, as a doctor, I can't do X. And then you keep saying, the natural law says you shouldn't do X or vice versa. As a doctor, I have to do this. And then you say, from the natural law standpoint, you really need to do this. He said, is that just a coincidence? And it really caused us to rethink sort of how it is that we were, um, how we were understanding the relationship between what Farr was doing and, and what I was doing. And that then structured the whole, the whole, our whole understanding of what we call the way of medicine. The way of medicine is the profession of medicine oriented toward the end of health, the good of health in particular patients, but understood within the larger framework of the entirety of the demands that ethics makes on us as human beings. And it's, I think, a great thing about our understanding of medicine that it lives up to those demands, right? You could do yes. an internal ethic of medicine and go your own way, but we think everything we say about medicine from that internal standpoint, it lives up to the most rigorous thinking that we were able to bring to bear from a fully ethical standpoint on what it means to be a human being engaging with the healthcare vulnerabilities of another human being. And, you know, I think that's, um, that, that wasn't exactly how we set out to do things, but in the end, it is what, what we did. And I think that it's a kind of strength of what we did. And I would encourage people who read the book to sort of read it with, with a view to, to identifying those two lenses going through it, right? what medicine is, and then the larger standpoint of natural law reflection. And one of the things that it does very well too is that and when I take a step back and look at like the larger stuff that I've been talking to people about reading about is, as I bring on different people and reflect on different things, because you know, mine is also that bigger question of just what it means to be human at this time and this age and how to, how do we cherish our humanity when we're moving in, in a direction that oftentimes in different philosophies are looking to abandon it or move beyond it. And one of the things that's fascinating, because I just wrote an article recently for Christian Research Journal on CRISPR technology and, and curing um, uh, uh, sickle cell disease. And that the idea that you're on the verge of, of these sort of therapeutic cures using CRISPR technology for genetic diseases and, and some of the ethics that are going on in there. But what you see, if you look at the rise of AI at the same time as the rise of CRISPR technology, as those, those two coincide, is that more and more those, the medical field and the information field and the data field are merging, right? That, that what's possible is starting to feel like everything is possible. And, and, and it's because we have digitized basically the genetic code and our evaluation of it and our ability to manipulate it is different than it has ever been in humans, at least potentially, right? As we start to find out what we can actually do through these mechanisms, through these tools that are developed through CRISPR. And, and so what, what, what I loved about your book in light of all of that is that as, as this, this, this exponentially growing digital ability coincides with this understanding of information through genetic inf uh, through genetic technology and the medical field could become could become obscured or, or sort of fuzzy about what is it you are what is it that you do because you can do anything right i mean that we talk about the biohackers that are out there right now trying to use crispr to to do all sorts of things with no ethical constraints whatsoever and believe mm -hmm. that they're going to be moving humanity forward and getting rid of weakness through humanity which we've heard that before and it never turns out turns out well when people start talking like that but your book i feel like and the way of medicine the way you guys approach it does such a great job at saying at this moment it might be a good time for us to to talk about what doctors are 
uh, because the lines are getting blurry as to what they're supposed to be dragged into. Every time we come up with a new biotechnology, are they to be dragged into that and then compelled to do that or to experiment into that or to work in that field? Just because, as we talked about earlier, it's medically possible, it's legal, and um, it, you know, it can be socially acceptable, which, which is a terrible judgment nowadays because yeah. almost everything is socially acceptable. Uh, and, and in addition to that, I want to just talk one, one more comment. I'm going to turn it over to you to, to wrap it up as you would like. But what you mentioned, and I forgot until you mentioned this in your last talk, the principle of fairness. And what I loved about the way y'all talked about fairness was that when we talk about the principle of double effect and when we make decisions towards health that will have negative side effects, as you defined fairness, and this comes up in, in when we talk about embryo research or, or abortion or things like that, it's not fair that the decision that I make, that I get the benefits and that the negative side effects are, are placed on another, right? That, that, that's, the, right. that's in principle kind of the definition of unfairness. The decision that I make to pursue benefits for me will have negative side effects because that's just the way the world works. But if I make a decision where I enjoy the benefits and the side effects are, are, are laid on another, then that's the very definition of unfairness. And that that's something that has to be central to the way of medicine is, is seeking fairness in treatment. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, can you still hear me? I, you seem to I cut can. out just, okay. Um, I, you know, I think one of the, here's just one, one quick thought about that. And then I'll say something else by way of wrapping up. Um, I mean, one area where I think this is just tremendously important is end of life issues An end of life stuff is different in one respect from abortion. The baby never consents to being killed yeah. in utero. Um, but people claim, and you know, whether, whether they're fully competent or not, I think is an important question, but people sometimes do claim that they would, they would like to have assistance in dying. Um, and as we point out, the Brittany Maynard case makes this clear, a lot of that is governed by a concern to be in control, right, rather than a concern for uh, suffering that can't be mitigated in any way. And that we try to show in the book, and many other people have shown in much greater detail, right? The willingness to allow physicians to make end of life, to make life ending choices of that sort, choices to kill, right, gives physicians an incredible amount of power that nobody else has, right? We are, we're very concerned in our society right now with the way in which um, the police, um, police ability to use lethal force yeah. becomes compromised. Right? But that happens in very public circumstances. If we give physicians, right, alone among all private agents, the ability to kill intentionally, it's going to happen in very private circumstances without a lot of oversight. And the effects that this is going to have on people who are not primarily concerned with their autonomy um, or their ability to control outcomes. Right? We talk a little bit about um, the way in which poor and minority communities don't seem to like physician-assisted suicide at all. They yeah. see themselves threatened by it. And there's a kind of unfairness in seeking the ability to control your own life at all costs when effectively the downstream consequences are going to be borne by other people who are poorer and have less autonomy and less power who are being coerced into ending their life because their lives are expensive or are viewed as useless. Um, there's a kind of unfairness that pervades that whole area and I think is central for thinking about it from a public policy standpoint. Yeah. 
because it's necessary in order to overcome the idea that, well, they've consented to it, so it has to be okay. Now we need to see where the negative effects of this choice are going to be most borne by, and it's going to be people who don't think of themselves as being in positions of, of power or autonomy yeah. in, our, in our world. So we, I need to say one, yeah, go ahead. I just, yeah, let me respond to that. And then you can, then yeah. you can, um, mm -hmm. when I, when I wrote about this many years ago and then had, and I did talk about it, the struggle was for me because I, you're on the academic side. I'm on the side more like the translator side or, or, or popularizer, however you want to look at it, however they define it. And so I had to take what everybody was writing at a time about physician suicide at an academic level and try to communicate it to people in a way that I thought would be helpful for them to balance it out because so much about physician assisted suicide falls into that idea of why do I care? I mean, that's really the mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, funny. Right. Why would I interfere with somebody's ability to make that decision for themselves? And, and the three things, and, and, and these come up um, in, in some form of your book as well, but the three things that I focused on in my, both the writing and the talks that I gave at the time was, let's try to understand the difference between three different things. One of them would be the right to refuse medicine or right to refuse medical treatment, which I affirm. Uh, one would be the right to die, which is an entirely different thing than the first one, in which we're getting into things as we talk about the way of medicine that are going to require actions from physicians that they may be opposed to, require actions from pharmacists that they may be opposed to, that the will of the person demanding that their death now becomes the, the duty of society to facilitate be over all objections if that becomes the law of the land and the way that we're going. Uh, and then finally, the, the, the felt duty to die. And I think you're getting into that as well as what you were just talking about, which is yeah. that once you embrace death as an answer, as a solution to those problems, there are whole categories and classes of people who now feel like the, the society wants them to embrace that choice. That the best thing that you could do for everybody is to go ahead and choose the path of death. That'll get you out of the way. You won't feel like a burden on other people. You won't be a burden on other people. And that that is where it gets really sneaky nefarious, right? I mean, at, mm -hmm. the, at the beginning, it sounds like it's all about autonomy and it's all about me being able to make free choices. Right. But what we, we create a whole victim class of very vulnerable people who seem to, to start to believe that society wants them gone because they're saying that this is a solution to the problem that you're facing. And the problem is just existence dealing with some sort of diminished capacities. And, and they're, they're finding joy and, and happiness living with those diminished capacities. But once you embrace that other view, it starts to become... They, you, you, we've read it. I've seen it, evidence of it where you see it, where this view has been embraced more in Europe, particularly that people oh, in Canada. Have, yeah. In Canada. Yeah. That people who have issues and, and the worst to me was when I found, I think somebody was released a couple of years ago that somebody in Washington had sought and was able to get physician assisted suicide because they were diabetic. And, and obviously having a type one diabetic daughter, I'm like, you, you can't be serious. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all understand that diabetics go through emotional swings where they just get tired of being a diabetic. You can't be serious that y'all let them kill themselves as opposed to just reaffirming to them that they were a valuable member of the community and that it was worth what they were going through to be to be able to love and be loved in a part of the world that we live in. Uh, we, we could have just been better people to them rather than let them die. Uh, so I'm sorry, I was getting a little mad. But, but um, anyway. <laughs> So, so that, that felt, what you're talking about there, where you get into that, that idea of a duty to die that starts to be felt by the vulnerable yeah. communities when we embrace this idea 
that we can insist on the death, that the community must facilitate death under certain circumstances. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, but, and that's, I mean, you have to deal with the entire package, I think, really, from the standpoint of thinking that this is a public policy issue. Yes. Let me, let me just, I was, there was something that you said earlier, Jay, that I just wanted to get back to, to yeah. close, because I, I thought it was really lovely the way that you put it, and it reminded me of, of other things that are going on. And the AI and all the information, there's a worry. I was part of a conference, maybe now five years ago, it was pre-COVID in, in Rome, called Will Science Remain Human? And I think we could, you know, you see if you if you're following the uh, the writers strike and the actors strike. Yeah. Um, right. There's some concerns about whether AI is going to be used to uh, to maintain a stock of extras so that human beings don't need to be sitting at tables and restaurants anymore. They can just keep generating new people. And of course, in, ac- in the academic world, we're, we're all worried about chat GPT and uh, what that's the effect that that's going to have. And so I think, you know, that question that we asked five years ago in Rome about science, you can easily ask it about, um, you know, art. Will art remain human? You can ask it about education. Will education remain human? And you can ask it about medicine. Will medicine remain human? And I I do think um, that part of what we're trying to accomplish with this book and with with the way of medicine is to chart a path that is going to make it possible for medicine to remain human. Um, and I think yes. we just this is this is part of a larger larger scale operation that we all need to be involved in across all the things that make human life worthwhile. We need to make sure that those also remain human. Wasn't it Larry Ellison that wrote the book "The Future Doesn't Need Us"? Uh, <laughs> that when he when he when that was years ago, where he first heard about all of this and got and came mm-hmm. out of it, just freaked out about what was coming. Yeah, I think, right. and that's such an. I talked about with Summit Ministries a couple of years ago. We did a an online forum. And when it, my focus on that talk was about transhumanism, post-humanism, AI, uh, the desire to get past humanity. And that's why I love, one of the things I love about this book and what you just said, right? I mean, we're going to have to intentionally hold on to our humanity. As it, we're going to have to see it as something worth preserving and, and, and find discipline to get to where as this onslaught of, of new hits that we remember that there are things worth preserving um, and at that point, I think I, I talk, it's funny because I, I had mentioned, um, charcuterie boards <laughs> and I was like, you know, there, there's something deeply human about a charcuterie board. And at the time I also, I was going to say wine, but I was worried because of the group I was talking to that that might be taken poorly. But it's like, when you talk about meats and cheeses and wines, there's such generational information in there. There's so much of people that have, we've cultivated. The information has been passed down. You have cheeses that are raised in cave or grown in caves where the caves have been used for generations. The same with meats uh, and, and wine barrels and all of these things is like, there's something so intensely human about a charcuterie board and a glass of wine. Uh, and the upside of that, other than that apparently it effectively communicated the point I was trying to make was that, a couple of times over the last couple of years, people have sent me nice charcuterie boards <laughs> because oh. they heard the talk and I was like, oh, well, that's, that's a nice way to do it. But, but that went to that point of what you're saying, right? Medicine needs to remain human uh, because it's going to be human beings going through terrible things and they need to have that connection uh, with somebody. Every medical crisis that my family's ever faced, uh, the, a good doctor made it easier. Yeah, right? exactly. And, and it, because they knew what we were going through. They knew beyond just your medical needs. I know where you are emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically right now. And I know through experience what I need to do to help you get used to what's going to be your new world starting today. 
Uh, and that's just an important thing, uh, keeping medicine human. Yep, that's right. The future might not need us, but we need us. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I cannot tell you how excited I was when you agreed to come on. Uh, this has been just one of my favorite conversations that I've had. I'm getting a thumbs up from JD, which means he's enjoyed listening to the two of us talk oh, good. as well. I'm glad. Uh, so, um, and, uh, you know, if you're, if you ever are willing to come on later at another time and talk about embryo, we can do that as well. And I appreciate your time and everything that you're doing. I, 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 I say this as almost like a fan, not almost as a fan, as a fan, right? It's great for me to be able to talk to you because my relationship with you has been extended for years prior to you and I having a conversation because I've read Embryo, read The Way of Medicine. I think you've read some stuff like Public Discourse that I read. Yeah. And so you, you have just, you have been somebody who has brought such great information and, uh, and in such a way that it makes it easy to translate this stuff to people who don't understand why it's important to them. I quote your work a lot. So this has just been a pleasure to be able to talk to you, sir. Well, back at you. This is, I, I've really enjoyed this. I feel like we've covered an incredible amount of territory in yeah. a relatively short period of time and it, it flew by. So fantastic. All right. Have a great day and I appreciate you, sir. Likewise. All right. God bless. God Bye. bless. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Human Things. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoy the content that we're creating through this endeavor, Feel free to visit us at merelyhumanministries.org. We have a donate ability there. You can donate online or you can mail in uh, uh, donations to us to help us to continue to make this. Also visit the website as we post these resources and other resources. And as we are in the second season, we're posting the interviews from the first season by themselves and we'll continue to do breakouts uh, as we get better at that. We're trying to, we're trying to identify certain segments that are worth sharing on their own. And all of this will be posted at merelyhumanministries.org. The next episode, we will be doing the weird abortion analogies episode. So please join us for that episode. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.